the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through James. Communication is not just talking. We think when we hear communication, we think, I got to say something. No, you don't. It's better sometimes you don't say anything. Have you ever gotten into a situation where had you just kept your mouth shut, it would have gone better for you? Mm-hmm. And so we should practice the art of listening. You don't need to speak unless it's necessary. Learn to listen. James says, on behalf of the Lord, swift to hear, slow to speak. Each and every one of us can more than likely think of a time where we would have been better off had we simply listened and said nothing. In most cases, it doesn't even dawn on us until much later that we were digging ourselves into a deeper hole, so to speak. In today's message, Pastor Gary reflects on the importance of being quick to listen and slow to speak. In his study, you'll learn how this simple virtue can not only keep you out of trouble, but can greatly improve your relationships too. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of James chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So that's encouraging and challenging all at the same time. Because while he says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, there's a commonality. We all deal with similar temptations. If we took a moment to go around the room and say, what tempts you? You know, I mean, not that we're going to do that, but uh, you know, that would be a little vulnerable, wouldn't it? Uh, but if you were to go around and say, this is what tempts me, everybody else would be going, Really? That, that tempts me too. Now, there's going to be some things that might tempt you. It doesn't tempt the next person. But between all of us, we're going to cover all of them. Okay? All of us are tempted to some degree. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God will provide a way out. That's the encouraging part of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So that when you are tempted, God will provide a way out. And that's the challenging part too. Because... If, again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that God will provide a way out when we are tempted, then that means if we give in to temptation, we have not taken his exit door. And then we bear responsibility. Now, it's important to note, as we're talking about this first point, that everyone faces temptation, temptation itself is not sin. By itself, it's not sin. Hebrews 4.15, 
says Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. In other words, he didn't give in to it. We all face temptation. But then the question becomes, what do you do with it? How, How do you deal with it? Do you walk away from it? Do you give in to it? So all of us will be tempted to one degree or another uh, throughout the day because we're still creatures of flesh. Even though you might have a personal relationship with Christ when you get saved, your spirit is regenerated, but your flesh is not. So we still struggle with fleshly desires, fleshly appetites. And these are the things that we have to constantly be dying to self about. We have to be crucifying the flesh. We have to be taking up our cross, dying to self. And, and this is part of what James is talking about here in terms of a life of holiness, you know, wanting to honor God with the way that we live. And so, though we have no choice necessarily on when we face temptation, we do have a choice in how we deal with that temptation. So everyone will be tempted. But notice point number two, God is not the source of temptation. Uh, because he, he, he spells that out there pretty clearly, doesn't it? He, he, he says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God's not going to bring some sinful tempting thing along your path, you know, to see what you're made of. You know, there are times that he tests us, but not in a tempting way that would cause us to compromise our sin ever. So that doesn't come from God. Where it comes from is our own desires, That's what he says in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Now, there are three things that work in concert against us, and I've said this many times over the course of of pastoring here at Cornerstone. Our own flesh, our own sinful desires, the world, okay, all the stuff that the world promises, and the devil. But all of those are appealing, those might be the source of, for our temptation, either my flesh or the devil or the world. All of them, though, appeal to my flesh. My flesh appeals to my flesh. The world appeals to my flesh. Satan appeals to my flesh. Remember when Satan tried to tempt Jesus into sinning? Uh, what, did, what did Satan always do? He was trying to tempt Jesus in the flesh in some way. You know, why don't you turn these stones into bread? tempting him, him physically, the hunger that he had because Jesus had been fasting. Why don't you, you know, throw yourself off, off of the pinnacle of the temple here? Why, take a look at all the kingdoms of the planet that I can give you. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Those are the entry points. Those are the temptation points in our lives. And so God doesn't tempt us. But we have to deal with our own desires. And, and we have to rein those things in and, again, crucify the flesh, die to self. But I want you to notice with me the third point is, is that temptation is progressive towards death. Because he, he talks there almost like it's a, a child that's being conceived. He uses this kind of language, verse 15. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown that gives birth to death. That's ultimately uh, what it leads to. So what he says about trials in in the first part of chapter 1, he says in a similar way about temptations here in this part of chapter 1. So let me put back up again the progress progress of trials. It's testing, patience, mature and complete. So that 
That's a good thing that comes out of difficulty. But then he also says temptation is progressive also. It starts with desires. Then, then we're enticed. So enticement then sets in. Then it leads to sin if we act on the temptation. And then ultimately the end game of leading a sinful life without repentance is death. Separation from God. So this is that progression. Remember, you see this progression. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it in your own life. You know how it unravels. But biblically, you see an example of this with the life of David, don't we? You know, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, the Bible says that David was up on the roof of his palace one night in the, in the springtime when kings go off to war, which is where David should have been. But David had too much idle time on his hands, right? So he's up on the roof of his palace. He looks across the way, sees Bathsheba bathing. And so it goes like this. The progression goes, he saw, right? He looked at her. He saw. Then he sent. He sent for her. He sent messengers. Go get her. Bring her to me. He saw. He sent. He slept. He slept with her. And then he slaughtered her husband, right? Because he brought Uriah home off the battlefield, encouraged him to sleep with his wife. Why don't you go home? Give you a little R&R. You need a little R&R here. You've been, you've been battle weary. Uriah, this is like the, the bro code, right? He's a warrior. Uriah is, is uh, he's a soldier. He's like, I, I can't enjoy my wife while my brother's in arms or on the field fighting and dying. And so David's like, okay, fine, go back to war. And David sends a note with Uriah to give to the general so that the general would put Uriah on the front lines so that Uriah would die. David's trying to cover up his sin because then he's thinking people will just think that Bathsheba's child is her husband's but Uriah will be dead, so he won't be able to say anything about it. And nobody will know my devious, sinful plan here. Except God. God always knows what we're up to. And the progression led to death. I mean, Uriah's death, and ultimately would have led to David's own death had it not been that he throws himself at the mercy of God and receives God's mercy and forgiveness. But notice the progression. He saw, he sent, he slept, he slaughtered. If he had stopped at just seeing, realizing the temptation, man, I got to walk away from this. Even at the point of sending for her, he could have then sent messages for her and then realized, oh, this is ridiculous, this is wrong, this is sinful. And and recalled the messengers. He still would have been okay. But the progression of it ended up where he actually commits the sin. When he saw from the roof of his palace, you know, somebody once said, the same stairs that took David up to the roof of his palace were the same stairs to take him down. In other words, David got to a bad place but he had the potential to exit the same way. You know, it wasn't this inevitable thing that had to happen. It was a choice that he made. This is the nature 
of temptation. This is what James is saying here. It's progressive. So the key for all of us is to recognize at the place of temptation, I got to stop. I can't go any further. I can't give in to this because then it becomes sin. Again, temptation itself is not sin. So that's where we have to deal with it. That's where we have to wrestle with it. That's where we have to realize I'm, I'm tempted right now. And listen, this is where the body of Christ can become a great strength and advantage to one another. If you're a guy and if you're married, maybe it can be your wife or in some cases, maybe you want another, you know, buddy, another, you know, brother in the Lord that you can call up. If you're a lady, same kind of thing. If you're married, maybe it could be your husband. Maybe it could be, you know, a a lady friend of yours. If we have somebody in our lives, be it a spouse, be it a friend, be it somebody that in the hour of temptation, we can call. Say, I'm struggling right now. In Ephesians, Paul says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Do you, do you know when we disarm the power of temptation? When we expose it before it becomes sin. When we bring it into the light before it takes us captive. So we have to deal with it at the level of temptation before it progresses to the ultimate, which is death. Verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. By the way, when he says there comes down from the Father of lights, uh, I think NIV might say heavenly lights. In the original Greek language, it is the Father of the lights. There's the direct article, the inserted in the original text, the father of the lights. What he's talking about is the lights being the celestial lights, the sun, the stars. Okay, we know that moon is not a light source, but it reflects the light of the sun. So between the sun and the moon and the stars, James is just simply saying that God, the creator of all the celestial lights, he says he's the one who gives every good and perfect gift to us. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. And he says about him, James writes, there is no variation or shadow of turning. There's nothing shady about God. There's no variation. There's no shadow. In fact, John would write in 1 John 1, 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's no darkness about God. And he, he's, he's about light. And He brings things into light. He is the Father of the lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. No shadow of turning with Him. And in verse 18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Now, circle the word first fruits. Let me just quickly explain first fruits. First fruits was actually a, a, a holiday on the Jewish calendar. And the Feast of First Fruits went like this. In the month of March and April is, is on the Jewish calendar when the, first of fruit, when the Feast of First Fruits happens. And you would typically cut down, and it was often from the barley harvest. That was one of the earliest of the harvests in late March and, and early April. You would cut down some of the early stalks of the harvest. You would take it to the temple, give it to the priest. The priest would wave it 
in, in the presence of the Lord at the temple, and here's what it would indicate. On the Feast of first fruits, you were bringing the first part of the harvest to the temple of the Lord, and you were thanking Him for His provision, and the waving of the first part of the fruit, the first part of the harvest, was in a sense saying, thank you for what you've given me, and I know there's more to come. There's more to come. There's more of a harvest. There's a larger harvest behind the first part of it. So they bring it to the temple of the Lord. They give it to the Lord that way. Now, check this out. Jesus rises from the dead on the Feast of first fruits. He dies on the Feast of Passover on the Jewish calendar. The Feast of first fruits started, hear this, the day after the Sabbath following Passover. All right, Sabbath day on the Jewish calendar, always Saturday, right? Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So the day after the Sabbath following Passover, that's when Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath following Passover. Jesus rose on first fruits. And in fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus our first fruits of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. And by saying that, what Paul meant was Jesus Christ rises from the dead, appears, then he ascends into heaven. And Paul uses the analogy of first fruits because he says, basically, Jesus is the first of many more to come. That there were going to be others, aka you and me, who faith in Jesus Christ means we're going to get a glorified body too one day. We're going to go to heaven too. So Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. You say, wait a minute, other people in the New Testament rose from the dead. How about like Lazarus? Yeah, but Lazarus died again. Everybody who rose from the dead in a miraculous way in the Bible, either through the ministry of Elisha, Elijah, or Paul, or Jesus, they all died again. But when we get a glorified body, we never die, and we will forever be with the Lord. That's the kind of glorified body Jesus had. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Christ is like the first fruits of the dead, because we end up getting, like he does, a glorified body. So when James here says, we're the first fruits of the creation, what he's saying is, we are among the believers who were saved, and there's many more to come. And here James is writing in the first century, and here we are now, all these centuries later, and we're part of the first fruits of his creation as believers. More to come. Here we are. Verse 19, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, or slow to become angry, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, notice this with me here in verse 19. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, or slow to become angry. You've heard it said, right? That God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. He wants us to listen twice as much as we talk. So we should be swift to hear, quick to listen. You know, how are your listening skills? Communication is not just talking. We think when we hear communication, we think, I got to say something. No, you don't. It's better sometimes you don't say anything. Have you ever gotten into a situation where had you just kept your mouth shut, it would have gone better for you? Mm-hmm. And so we should practice the art of listening. You don't need to speak unless it's necessary. Learn to listen. James says, on behalf of the Lord, swift to hear slow to speak. Write this verse down for those of you who are like, yeah, I really need to work on that. Psalm 141 verse 3, 
Psalm 141, verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Amen. Some of you want to write that verse out and put that on your mirror every morning when you brush your teeth. And you're going to read that. Psalm 141, 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. And then slow to wrath. Slow to become angry. Now, a riddle. What's the one thing that you can't get rid of by losing it? Your temper. What's the one thing you can't get rid of by losing it? Your temper. Now, yeah, no, no, you just got it, didn't you? Um, I, I try to throw these out free of charge, and uh, some of you will get it on the way home. But anyway, what's the one thing you can't get rid of by losing it? Your temper. Now, not all anger is sin. We know this, right? Not all anger is sin. Jesus got angry at the temple when the people had turned the temple into a flea market. And so Jesus goes around with a whip and driving out the money changers, you know, which I think is a biblical precedent for why, ladies, you should not make your husbands go to a flea market, because Jesus didn't like it. <laughs> and there's a verse about it, but anyway. Not all anger is sin. God got angry, angry in the Bible. Numbers 11, verse 1, he got angry with the Israelites when they complained about their hardships in the wilderness. Numbers 11, 1 says, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused, and then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So not all anger is sin. In fact, if you didn't get angry about a few things, there would be something wrong with you. You know, if somebody tried to or did harm your family member, and you weren't angry about that, there's something wrong with you. If somebody falsely accuses you of something, and you're not a little mad about that, there's something wrong with you. When something fails that you worked really hard at, and you're not a little angry, not all anger is is sin. Anger is a pretty normal emotion. It's what we do with it that matters. When anger gets out of control, it becomes destructive, it becomes harmful. This is why Paul would write in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, he said, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let anger get to the place where now it is harmful, either to yourself or to others. And that's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. And by the way, explosive anger can be just as destructive to someone as implosive anger. You know, some people decide, I'm going to vent. That's how they show their anger. And that isn't right, the way that they just spill all over everybody. That's destructive. But so is implosive anger. You you know the kind of people who, I'm not going to get angry. I'm just going to keep it all inside. Right. Until one day you, you, you turn your implosion into an explosion. Because it's like, you know, it's like a Coke bottle that gets, you know, shaken up at some point it's going to blow the lid. You, you can't, you know, just keep it all inside. So we, we have to deal with anger. We have to, you know, give it to God so that it doesn't become something that is destructive to ourselves or to others. Proverbs fourteen sixteen and 17, a wise man fears the Lord and shuns evil, but a fool is hot-headed and reckless. A quick-tempered man does foolish things. Proverbs 29:22 An angry man stirs up dissension and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. So we have to be careful to be slow to wrath. 
for the wrath of, of man, when a guy or a lady gets angry, does not produce the righteousness of God. Sometimes we become so familiar with Scripture that we forget these words were actually spoken by the Lord and that He actually meant them. How would your life change if you took the verses in James seriously? For example, James 1.27, which says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's so much to live up to in just this one verse. When is the last time you visited an orphan or a widow? And the second part is perhaps even tougher. How much of the world has made its way into your home? Are the things you're watching and reading and listening to glorifying to the Lord? Or are they perhaps staining you in ways you haven't even realized? We're all in this life together and learning and growing step by step. Pastor Gary Hamrick is making his way through James, which is absolutely filled with challenges to our comfort and complacency. But isn't it great? With each new message, you and I have the chance to grow more like our Savior. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection. If you're enjoying the opportunity to become more like Christ, we have more for you. Just subscribe to our podcast, and we'll see you here next time for another opportunity to grow on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.